Would you join me in prayer as we now seek God in His Word? Father God, as we hear from you today, Lord, I pray that you would help us to turn from everything in our lives, everything in our lives that is keeping us from you. God, I pray that we would lay down our idols, that we would confess our sin, bring it to light. God, that we may be healed by you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the next few months, we're going to be spending most of our time looking at the ministry of the prophets in the Old Testament, Uh, the books of Kings and Chronicles and Samuel that we've been looking at over the last couple of months tell us a little bit about the ministry of the prophets, but we learn most about the prophets in their own writings. And I want to encourage you again to take a look at the table of contents at the beginning of your Bible. Uh, For those of you who may or may not be all that familiar with the scriptures, or even if you've studied it for a long time, this is a good time to review and remind ourselves who these prophets were, uh, where their stories and writings come from, and uh, what part they play and what role they play in the scriptures. Over the next few months, we're going to be looking at some of the writings of the prophets and the role that these prophets played in the life of Israel. There's really two things that I want to do this morning uh, during this sermon. First, I want to give you an introduction to the ministry of the prophets, to, to talk about the way that the prophets were called by God to confront Israel in their disobedience and in their idolatry, to call them away from the false worship that many, many people in Israel were running toward, and to call them to faithfulness to the Lord God of Israel. That was one thing they were called to do, to challenge Israel in their idolatry and in their disobedience. And secondly, to look at one story, one story from the prophet Elijah that is a great example, a great example of the ministry of the prophets in Israel during this time. So if you look at the the table of contents in your Bible, the last 17 books of the Old Testament were written by the prophets. In the time before Christ, there were two ways that God primarily spoke to his people. One way was through the law, and the other way was through the prophets. And the prophets were men who were inspired by God to to be his mouthpiece to the people of Israel. And uh, there are all kinds of themes throughout these prophetic writings, but I want to say that there are two main themes that, uh, that the prophets spoke about. As I said already, to call Israel to faithfulness to the covenant by warning them about God's judgment that was coming because of their idolatry and disobedience. And second, to give Israel hope by telling them that there was a Messiah that was to come. So the first point of the prophets is to warn them of God's judgment because of their idolatry and disobedience. And second, to give Israel hope by telling them of the Messiah that was to come. If you look in the the table of contents, you come to the book of Isaiah. It's after Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then there is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And those first five books of the prophets are are called the major prophets. They're the longest uh, books, uh, prophetic books in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Jeremiah also wrote the book of Lamentations. Uh, and then Ezekiel and Daniel. These are the major prophets. 
And then the next 12 books in the Old Testament have come to be known as the minor prophets. Now, major and minor doesn't mean more important and less important. It just means that their books were shorter. And the writings of these last 12 prophets were originally all put into one scroll. And their writings have become known as the Book of the Twelve. The Book of the Twelve. So if you're ever uh, doing any research uh, on Old Testament books, if you ever see this, the Book of the Twelve, they're referring to these last 12 books of the Old Testament, also called the Minor Prophets. Now, most of these prophets uh, lived and did their ministry in the times of the kings. And so if you read the stories of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, most of these prophets uh, lived and, and spoke to Israel during the time frame of those books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. And so you can kind of uh, imagine these 17 books that these, these prophets were speaking into those situations uh, that those kings and the people of Israel were going through during that time. And if you remember in those stories that this was, once again, a time of Israel's unfaithfulness. There was a good king, David, and uh, for a while things were going pretty well. And then under the reign of Solomon, uh, David and Solomon both, in some ways, led God's people to worship. They established the worship in the temple. They established and directed the people's hearts toward the God of Israel. But at the end of Solomon's reign and after that, uh, things went really bad really fast. And with the exception of a few kings uh, along the way, most of the official leadership in Israel was corrupt, and they they, uh, turned people's hearts away from God rather than toward God. And so these prophets were men who were called by God to speak the word of God to Israel at this time of unfaithfulness, to call the people of Israel away from their idolatry, away from their disobedience, and back to God's covenant. And for those who are listening and those who are are eager for God to do his will in the world, they provided hope that God was sending a Messiah who would come and who would establish his reign over Israel and over the whole earth. So these prophets were the mouthpiece of God to Israel during this time when the official leadership of Israel, the kings and a lot of time the priests, were very corrupt and they were not doing their job. And so God called these prophets, these men who were, were not in the lineage of kings, who were, were not usually from the priestly caste, so, although there were some of those, but uh, these people who were called by God from oftentimes the margins of society, the everyday people of society, to come, filled them with his spirit to be a voice to the people of Israel. And so as the prophets were calling Israel back to faithfulness, one of the things that the prophets speak a lot about is Israel's idolatry, Israel's idolatry. And I want to spend a bit of time talking about idolatry today because it isn't something that we typically talk about a lot as Christians in North America. But the prophets talk a lot about idolatry. And if we don't come to a good understanding of what idolatry was for Israel and what it is for us, we're going to have a difficult time understanding the writings of the prophets. It's one of the main themes in their writings. When you think of the word idol, what do you think of? You think of when you think of the word idol. I suspect that perhaps one of two things kind of come into your mind. For some of you, you may think of a small wooden or stone statue that some religions worship and that we kind of just find strange. Why would somebody bow before a wooden uh, statue or a stone statue? So that may be one thing that you think of. When you think of the word idol, 
For others, when you think of the word idol, you may think of the way that we use that word kind of casually, like we idolize someone who's famous, or we idolize someone in our life that we admire. We even have this TV show, right, called American Idol. And I suspect for most of us, when we think of idols or about idolatry, we usually think think of it in one of those two ways. Either as this strange practice that's foreign to us of other religions where they have these idols in their homes or in their temples that people bow bow down to. Or we think about it as this euphemism that we use for a person or a thing that we admire. But rarely do we think of ourselves as idolaters. We think of ourselves as sinners... But do we think of ourselves as idolaters? I think in our evangelical church in the United States, we talk about sin. We talk about resisting temptation, but keeping ourselves from idols? What does that mean? What does that mean? Oz Guinness, a great contemporary writer in the church, has this to say about our view of idolatry. He says, quote, Idolatry is the most discussed problem in the Bible. And one of the most powerful spiritual and intellectual concepts in the believer's arsenal. Yet for Christians today, it is one of the least meaningful notions that we come across in the scriptures. Perhaps this is why evangelicals are ignorant of the idols in their lives. Contemporary evangelicals are little better at recognizing and resisting idols than modern secular people are. There can be no believing communities without an unswerving eye to the detection and destruction of idols. Idolatry is one of the most common ways that the Bible speaks about our disobedience and about our wandering away from God. Idolatry is at the heart of the first two of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol. Throughout the story of Israel, idolatry was Israel's greatest temptation. It was the reason that they were sent into exile, and the prophets warn against it over and over again. The New Testament writers themselves warn against the dangers of idolatry in our lives. The entire letter of 1 John ends with the words, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. If we do not think about idolatry, if we don't really think about what that means to us, then we're missing one of the ways that the Bible speaks to us about our disobedience. And I think because we typically do not think about idolatry in relation to our own hearts then we may have failed to see where it may be a reality there in our hearts. John Calvin is very famous for saying that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. From our mother's womb, each of us is an expert in inventing idols. So what exactly is idolatry? How we are to to understand this? I don't know about you, but I have no temptation to kneel down before a little stone statue. There's no temptation in my life for that. So what is idolatry for me? What is it for you? Well, I think idolatry is taking a good thing and making it into the ultimate thing. Idolatry is taking a good thing and finding our hope or our trust, or our comfort in that thing, rather than in God. 
Idolatry is taking a good, created thing that God has made and giving it a place in our lives where only God belongs. This is idolatry. This world that we live in has been given to us as a gift, and God has given it to us as a gift in order to point us to Him, the Creator. God's intention is that his creation would always point us to him and would be used in order to glorify and honor him. And our problem as human beings is that we're always tempted, always tempted to worship the created thing rather than the creator. We can see and touch and handle the created things, right? We can even control and manipulate created things. We cannot see We cannot touch, we cannot handle and control the Creator. And so we focus our attention, we pursue, we make the created thing a priority. We invest our lives and our energy and our attention in created things. We place our heart with created things rather than with God. You and I were created by God to worship. We were created by God to worship. We are worshipers, agnostic, atheist, believer, whatever. We are created to worship, and everyone will worship something. You will make something the ultimate thing in your life. And so the things that you pursue, the things that you put above other things, are those things that could be idols in your life, could be money, could be relationships, could be the acceptance and affirmation of other people could be power or influence. Our idols could be comfort. It could be safety. I think one of the idols of our world today is definitely technology. We believe that technology can and will save us as human beings. Entertainment, definitely. I think of the hours and the hours and the hours that we spend in front of the television as a culture. It is an idol in our culture, this entertainment. Again, all of these things, money, entertainment, comfort, safety, relationships, all of these things are good things, right? But they become idols when they demand of us the attention and the time and the energy that only God deserves. Or when those things are used outside of the boundaries that God has given for us to use them in. We know Even though we don't struggle with idolatry, perhaps, in the way that we think about other religions do, we know, we know that each of us have all sorts of things in our lives that we bow toward, that we meditate on, that we think about, that we spend our time with, that we consider how we could acquire, or that we consider how we could hold on to it even more tightly and make sure that we don't lose it. So I would encourage you this morning, what is it that is an idol in your life, or that has a potential to be? What is it that God wants to crush in your life? What is it that holds your attention? What is it that receives your time and your energy? What is it that you would not give up for Christ? We are made to be worshipers. As human beings, we will worship something. We will put something first in our life. And the biblical message is this, that we will become like whatever it is that we worship. We will become like whatever it is that we worship. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 5 says that whoever worships a worthless idol becomes worthless themselves. 
Turn to Psalm 115, and this point is made very clearly. We become like whatever we worship. Psalm 115. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. We become like whatever we worship. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, because of your love and faithfulness. Why did the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. They have noses but they cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Those who make idols and those who trust in them will be like the idols that they worship. In this phrase, those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust them, show up again in Deuteronomy, in Isaiah, and in Jeremiah. This is a biblical principle. We become like what we worship. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that we become like an idol? What does it mean that we become like the idols that we worship? I think there's a lot of things that we could say about this, but there's one thing that I want to make clear today about what it means for us to become like the idols that we worship. The main way that we become like what we worship is that we become spiritually dead. The psalm says that the idols have eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, mouth but cannot speak, feet but cannot walk, hands but cannot feel, and a throat that cannot utter a sound. An idol has no life in it. And when we worship idols, when we put something other than God at the first place in our life, then we have no spiritual life in us. We do not see God. We cannot hear from God. We cannot walk in His ways. We cannot sense His Spirit. We become spiritually dead. An idol has no life. It is unable to say anything. And when we worship idols, we become like them. Without spiritual life without an ability to do any good spiritual thing. We become spiritual flat, spiritually flatlined, unresponsive to God, powerless to have any impact on the world. An idol has ears but cannot hear, eyes but cannot see, a mouth but cannot speak, feet but cannot walk, hands but cannot feel, and a throat that cannot utter a sound. Those who worship idols will be like them. How? By becoming all of those ways spiritually. We are made in the image of God. We are made in his image with the capacity to know God and to love God and to see God and to hear from God and to sense his spirit and to walk in his ways. And we are called to be these worshipers and to go into the world and to reflect the image of God to fill the whole earth with the glory of God. And I want to read a few, a few verses from the New Testament for you, and I want to engage your mind and heart in the hearing of these scriptures with this idea that we become like what we worship, and that if we worship idols, we become spiritually dead. 
I want you to hear these verses from the New Testament and think about what this means for us as worshipers of Jesus. Romans 8, 28 through 29. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Philippians 3, 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. 1 Corinthians 15, 47 through 49. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are also those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. And then 2 Corinthians three eighteen, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Conformity into the image of Christ, we become like what we worship. Sharing the likeness of Christ, the man of heaven, we become like what we worship. Transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, we become, I've been saying it wrong, not like, like what we worship, we become like who we worship. This is the work that God is doing in each of us as we become worshipers of Jesus. Through the power of the cross and the resurrection, we are invited into this relationship with God where by His Spirit, He transforms us into Christ's likeness. Now as we walk with Him day by day, we are transformed into His image. We become like Him. When we worship idols, we become spiritually dead, unresponsive to God. When we worship Christ, We become spiritually alive, responsive to God and to his heavenly Father. Jesus lived his life always with an awareness and with a responsiveness to his heavenly Father, always responsive to God. When we worship Christ, we become more and more like that, more and more responsive to God in our lives, more and more able to reflect him in our lives, more and more able to hear from him and be transformed more and more into this image of Christ. Second Corinthians 3 says, with ever-increasing glory, as we contemplate the Lord's glory, as we worship, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory being reflected in us. The mission of God is to fill the whole earth with his glory. And he is about that mission now in your life by transforming you more and more into the image of Jesus so that in your life, wherever you go, in your home or in your neighborhood or in your workplace, that you may more and more reflect his glory to the world. That you more and more may reflect his holiness, his goodness, his kindness, his character, his compassion, to the world. 
And God is jealous for your worship because he made you in such a way that he knows that you become like whatever it is that you worship. He knows that when you put something else above him that you become spiritually dead and unresponsive to him. And so he is jealous for your worship so that you can become more like his son, so that you will reflect his glory more and more in every area of your life. God is jealous of this purpose of filling the whole earth with his glory. And he's jealous of us as human beings to reflect this glory. And so he is at war with any and everything that keeps us from worshiping him. God intended Israel to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests in the world. God called Israel to be a light to the nations. Israel's way of life among the nation, their worship of the Lord God of Israel, was to reflect the glory of God to the world around them, to the nations around them, and to draw the nations to come and to worship God. But throughout the history of Israel, over and over again, Israel just became like all the other nations. They lost their distinctiveness. They worship the idols of the other nations. They participate in the same religious practices. They fail to be this light to the nations. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, we come to a story where it had become very much like this at the time of Israel. Jezebel and Ahab were the leaders of the northern kingdom of Israel. And they had led Israel to worship the Canaanite gods called the Baals, and they had completely rejected the God of Israel. And Jezebel has in fact gone now on a killing spree, killing any of the prophets of the Lord God of Israel. And Ahab is now trying to find Elijah, because he believes Elijah's caused some problems in Israel. And Elijah, Elijah challenges Ahab and the prophets of Baal to a, defi- a divine face-off on Mount Carmel. I thought about retelling this story, but the Bible just tells it way better than me. And so I'm going to read 1 Kings chapter 18. And I'm going to read uh, about 20 verses here. 1 Kings 18, starting with verse 16. 1 Kings 18. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals and now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. So get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God. And I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people says, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. 
Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bowl given them, and they prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Uh, Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or busy, or maybe he's traveling. Um... Maybe he's sleeping and he needs to be awakened. So they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears, and as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention because idols have eyes but cannot see and ears but cannot hear. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. And they came to him, and he repaired the, repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. And Elijah took twelve stones, one from each of the tribes, descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. And the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood and the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. It's a great story, isn't it? In this story, we read about God's confrontation with idolatry through the prophet Elijah. And in this story, we read uh, three things about idolatry. I'm going to go through these quickly. First, that idolatry is real. Secondly, that idolatry destroys us. And third, that God destroys idolatry. Idolatry is real. It destroys us. And God will destroy idolatry. Idolatry is real, even if it is very subtle. Elijah comes to the people and he asks them, How long are you going to waver between two different opinions? How long, Israel, are you going to go back and forth between worshiping the gods of the Canaanites and giving your whole heart to the God of Israel? The people of Israel were trying to serve two masters. They tried to serve Baal when they think he would help, and they tried to serve the God of Israel when they thought he would help. They wavered. They were divided in their loyalty. I ask you this morning, in what ways is your own heart divided in its loyalties? What receives the attention of your heart that only God deserves? Jesus says that wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What receives the attention of your heart? What do you think about? What do you do in your solitude? When you are alone and no one else is around, how do you spend your time and your energy? 
These are questions to ask yourself to consider where is your real loyalty in your heart? The human heart is an idle factory. What receives your attention? What receives your energy and your commitments? Idolatry is real in our life, even if it is subtle and hidden. Maybe from other people. Maybe they're hidden even from our own hearts. But what we learn in the story of Elijah is that there is a real battle going on for the commitment of our hearts. A real battle going on for the commitment of our hearts. The second thing we learn is that idols will destroy us. Listen again to what the prophets of Baal did to try to get their God's attention. They shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Idols destroy us. They demand everything and they give nothing. They promise happiness and fulfillment if we give them our time and our sacrifice, but in the end, they leave nothing but scars. Katie and I were talking this past week about the idol of fame in our culture. I don't think there's anything worse that can happen to someone than becoming famous. Is there a single child star in the last 20 years who has survived the idol of fame? It's probably a very obvious example. I think certainly any of us can think about our own addictions. Any of us who have entered into the world of pornography know how empty it is, how it demands our time and our energy and our sacrifice and leaves us empty. Certainly, all kinds of addictions do the same. Promise of immediate satisfaction, but only leave scars in our life. These prophets of Baal believe that through sacrificing their blood, that their God would listen. Friends, we serve a God who reversed all of that who does not demand our blood so that he will listen, but who gave his blood so that we could listen. He reverses idolatry, reverses the whole spiritual worldview of idolatry. And third in this story, we have the promise that God will destroy all idols. Last week, we talked about the promise of the Messiah who will come and forgive us of our sin and who will destroy the power behind our sin. Friends, every one of us come here this morning with our own idols or at least those potential idols in our life. Each of us come with those things in our hearts that we have put above God. For some of us, our idols are very obvious. We know them very well. The people around us know them very well. Our families know them very well. For others of us, perhaps, our idols are very secret. They are hidden. We bow to them when no one else is looking, or perhaps they're even so subtle that we've forgotten what they are in our own hearts. Whatever it is, we serve a God who has the power to destroy that idol in your life. We serve a God who shed his blood so that your sins could be covered, so that you no longer need to be ashamed, but can stand in his presence. And through his blood, he has overcome the power that that idol has in your life. You can be forgiven for your sin, and you can be set free from your sin through the power of Jesus. This morning, I want to ask you, Are you wavering between two opinions? Are you seeking to serve two masters in your life? 
This morning, I want to call you to confess that and to repent of that and to turn to the living God who has the power to destroy every idol in our world and in your life. So this morning, uh, our brother Steve is going to lead us in a time of communion. Steve, if you want to come on up. Uh, during this time of communion or in the song that follows, we certainly will invite you to come forward. And if you'd like to pray with somebody about anything in your life, please feel free to come to this side. Yeah, if you want to pray on your own and uh, simply seek God on your own, in your own heart and mind, but want to take some act in order to, to commit yourself to this, I encourage you to come over here and to pray on your own over here. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, we, we confess to you, we say to you that we have put all kinds of other things and people ahead of you. And we ask for your mercy and for your forgiveness. You would help us to fully place our trust in you and to discover when we do that how you destroy every idol in our lives. God, we thank you for shedding your blood that we may come to know you and see you and hear you and experience you. We thank you for that. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.